So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello and welcome back, y'all. Okay, so today I have the pleasure of introducing Ms. Sonia Floyd, MED, CCC, SLP, the current immediate past president of the Georgia Speech-Language Hearing Association. Y'all, I met this rock star of an SLP several years ago when I was guest lecturing at GASHA, which... Sonia, I've always laughed and said it kind of sounds like a wound, but skisha sounds like an itch, so we're fair. (laughs) And 
And Sonia, I don't know if you remember, um, I met you because you were checking me in at the registration table. And I was so nervous about public speaking the following morning at the convention that uh, my essential tremor was through the roof. And I was literally shaking when I went up to the table. And you just flashed a smile from your heart and you made me feel so instantly welcome that my nerves melted away. Okay, so I met I met Sonia then, and then a couple of years later we met again at CSAP, the Council of State Association Presidents, where I like literally bumped into her on accident because I'm a klutz and have no grace, and we brushed arms. And this sounds crazy, but I noticed that she had like the softest skin and I suffer from chronic dry, itchy skin. And I'm weird and I notice when people have soft skin because like I'm always dry and flaky. Well, I was, not anymore. And you told me a secret that has changed my personal quality of life. So y'all go get you some bio oil because that is it has really made a huge difference. And I now swear by it. And even the boys will say, mama, your hands are so soft after I put it on. So I'm so grateful for that because I was incredibly self-conscious before. All right. That's seriously the weirdest intro to First Bite ever, but I just had to share <laughs> that this amazing SLP is truly kind and generous in all aspects of her walk both professionally and personally. And I am honored to have her on today to have some crucial conversations about cultural competency within state association leadership. So hi, welcome. How are you, sweet friend? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Um, we're, we're good. Uh, Y'all, I'll, I'll be honest, both her and I are running on limited sleep, mine because I just don't sleep. And yours is tiny human induced, correct? Correct. <laughs> See, they try to kill us on the way out and then subsequently. <laughs> well, okay. thank you for having me on this morning. Oh, well, they, I, I am glad that you're here. And, and we've, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, Y'all, we are a profession that is, predominantly white females. And that is not reflective of the patients that we treat, right? And I strongly feel that our, our profession and our state association membership, and for that matter, our national association should be reflective of the greater community, right? But you are our future, our present, and I can't fathom how hard you've had to work to get there. So I am honored that you're here to talk about it. So, and you're from Georgia, and y'all, I don't know if you saw the news the last couple months. Georgia's had a little bit going on, and that's my sister state. So um, it trickles over <laughs> into South Carolina <laughs> a lot. Um, so we we have to have these conversations. So, hi, what made you want to be an SLP? <laughs> well, I originally thought... I wanted to be an occupational therapist and I quickly dispelled that myth and ruled it out. I was working at Zaxby's at the time in high school and I worked with 
the owner's sister who was a special education teacher. And she told me to look at speech pathology. She had wanted to be a speech pathologist, but she had two young boys at home when she was considering entering the program and the closest program being a little over two hours away from her home. So it wasn't feasible as there were no um, distance learning programs at the time. So I started researching speech pathology and instantly fell in love, um, went and toured a couple of universities. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I stuck with it. You know, not like a lot of people who say they want to do something in high school and then they change their mind when they get to college. That was not me. I knew what I wanted to do. I stuck with it. So that's how I got introduced to the field. Awesome. Okay. So you went to Valdosta State, am I correct? For graduate school. I went to undergraduate at what was then Armstrong Atlantic State University, and it's now Georgia Southern University Armstrong campus um, for the undergraduate program. So I spent four years in Savannah and then I went to Valdosta for about a year and a half on campus. And then I spent the rest of the time off campus back home with my family to complete my intern and externship before graduating. Nice. Okay. So I, when you and I first met, we were at in Athens is that where Valdosta is? No. Athens is where the University of Georgia is. Is that the Bulldog? Yes. I'm going to pretend like I know sports. That's a lie. <laughs> so I don't really know. <laughs> I just remember that when I checked in, I think their like baseball team was there or something. And I was the only one not wearing whatever colors they had on. And I felt very put out because I was like, they were all looking at me funny because I guess it was like a big game or something. <laughs> and I got in the elevator and they they were saying, go dogs or something. Is that the phrase? Go dogs? That is yeah. the phrase. Yes. Yes. And I was like, yeah, who are? Because <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, huh. I mean, we cheer army, go army, beat Navy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, my husband went to West Point. That doesn't make sense outside of that context. So, yeah, okay. You could have given a little uh, excitement by saying, go Tigers. You're right over there with Clemson. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I definitely don't cheer for them. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Hoo <laughs> Oh, okay. I'll behave myself. Okay. All right. So, you, you, you went through graduate school and, and, you got out and you entered the workforce. So talk to us, where did you, um, like what profession, like what setting in our profession did you tackle? So my first introduction to our field was working in outpatient in a hospital in Florida. That's where I completed my CF. I worked with pediatrics and adults. And then I also had the privilege to work with newborns doing infant hearing screenings, which I really loved. Um, so that was my introduction to the world of speech language pathology. Um, I finished up my CF and then, um, the, the hospital that I worked for had a program in combination with the city where they were serving pediatric, um, preschoolers. They had a, like a preschool program going on. Well, they lost the funding for that being that they're a public hospital and budget cuts. So they had overhired by three SLPs 
all three of us were CFs and I was the first one to complete my CF. So they were like, well, we're sorry you've completed your CF, but we don't have a position for you any longer. And I was like, great, because I really hated the position that I was in. <laughs> want it out. Um, so this was a perfect situation for me. Um, so at that time, then I decided to come back to Georgia and I reached out to a few people and I ended up um, getting a position as a travel SLP with a company. That's uh, cool. Yeah. So I took that and I did that for about three and a half years. And then um, that was primarily skilled nursing facilities, but I did do some hospital, like outpatient, a little bit of inpatient type stuff. Um, and then after three and a half years, kind of got tired of traveling. So I started working full time in a skilled nursing facility and was doing some PRN, um, acute care, swing bed, um, SLP work as well with a local hospital with another SLP that had a contract there. So I was subcontracting through her. Um, and I also started doing a little bit of home health PRN. So I've kind of got a little bit of experience and a little bit of everything. Um, so I did that for several years and then about two and a half, almost three years ago now, I decided to expand uh, upon my skill set again, and I went and completed fees training. Um, and then about six months later, I was actually able to get a position where I was able to complete my fees competency and start working doing fees full time. And that's currently where I am now. Um, provide those fee services within the skilled nursing facilities. Um, I do also have um, experience with doing it in a LTAC facility and a um, acute care hospital and outpatient. Awesome. Yeah. All right. How did you transition? What made you decide to pursue leadership? Was that and, and and this is this is where we get into the meats and potatoes with um, cultural competency because I, I truly feel and it it happens that often state association boards end up being predominantly um, white SLPs because that's the nature of our profession, currently. right? So, what was your motivators and? If we could have the conversation, what were challenges to engaging? Um, the benefit for me as far as engagement with state association and how to get involved was I went to a graduate program where they really encouraged you from a student to get involved with your national association, ASHA, as well as your state association, which for me in Georgia was GASHA at the time. <clears throat> when I moved to Florida, I did um, reach out and look into Flasha, but I never joined because I was there for such a short stint of time. Um, but definitely in Georgia, once I moved back and decided that I was going to be here for the long haul, um, I started reaching out to SLPs within the company that I worked for that I knew were involved on the state level. Um, so that's how I got involved. I 
really and truly just kept after them and said, hey, I want to be involved. How do I get involved? Who do I talk to? Because it was almost like it's, it was more of who you knew versus how to just get access to it. Like, yeah, of course, you know, you could become a member and all of that. But to get that inside track, you had to know someone. So at the time, I was working with Vince Clark. And I so, love Vince. Vince has been on. I, I love Vince. Oh, my God. You guys, you have to just put it upon yourselves to meet Mr. Vince Clark. When he laughs, your soul will smile. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I was working with Vince and I kept telling him, you know, how much I wanted to be involved and I wanted to actually, you know, make an impact. How could I be most helpful to the association and gain a little bit of visibility? Um, so he said, you know what? The best place to start is convention committee. So he linked me up with the people that were over the convention committee at the time. And I started out doing things like the silent auction with convention committee. Oh, that's a beast, dude. I did the silent auction table. It was. <laughs> and our silent auction was at the time primarily um, funded through the executive council. Everything was done through the executive council. We really didn't seek a lot of outside sources because they didn't have the volunteers available to do that. So it was just easier for them to make a donation and then the items be raffled off. Well, I changed the culture of that. I started seeking members of the committee to assist me in soliciting different vendors. And we started gathering different items from all kinds of different companies. And so it grew and it actually went from being an expense to a actual income that we had. Um, so that That's was a bonus. Awesome. Yes, that is huge. Okay, wait, y'all, the silent auction committee, it's the, when you do silent auction for your state conventions, you, you want fun things for your membership, right? Like they're spending all that money coming to a convention. Yes, they're getting the benefit of CEUs. They're getting the benefit of high quality speakers and, and growing professionally, but you still want to have fun. And it's hard to start asking people for donations. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like when it gets down to like the need to ask, it's, it's kind of overwhelming to continually ask, but it's one of those things that membership loves and that is an excellent volunteer spot. Yes. Okay. Continue. Sorry. I'm making a pitch for all state associations everywhere. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We need all the volunteers that we can get. So if you're willing and able to work, please come. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So I started out doing silent auction. Um, and then from silent auction, I got more engaged with the convention committee and started helping with call for papers and um, doing some other things. <clears throat> Eventually I was approached and asked to consider being convention co-chair. So the way it works with our state association, you serve as convention co-chair for a year before you actually move into the position of chair so that you can learn all the moving parts and kind of get a feel for what you'll be doing, what the expectation is and how to actually plan and organize this event and who and how to recruit people to support you in this role. Okay. So Folks, just so you know, every state association has a similar 
but different structure. And you can find, or you should be able to see your unique state association structure on the state association website, the policy and procedures manual. And what's the other manual? I can't remember. Executive council. Yes. Yes. And, and it's right there. So if you feel a calling to serve, you can check out your state association website and see where your talents and strengths lie and, 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 pursue it. Right. Um, and wait, and you said, you said one thing before co-chair. Oh, let me go back. Nope. Lost it. It'll come back to me. I continue. I apologize. (laughs) So I moved into the position of co-chair, um, and really learned a lot. The chair of the year that I was co-chair was Jacqueline Yokely and she had everything laid out. You know, she taught me how to use the Um, convention guide that we had put together, um, how to solicit speakers, how to get people on my committee. So the year that I moved into the position, it was pretty much a seamless transition. Um, And then we have a management company that we hire. At the time, it was someone different from who's managing us now. And they also have different parts that they play in how we manage our convention and get everything together. So that's my time as convention chair and co-chair. And then as I was ending my year as convention chair, I was approached again and asked to consider running for president elect. And I was like, "Mm, I'm not sure that that's what I want to (laughs) do. That sounds like a lot of responsibility. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. So I was told, well, you know, I've noticed, you know, your work ethic and your drive. I think you'd be a great person for the position. I really want you to consider it. And, you know, like most anybody else, I'm always up for a challenge. And I thought about it, talked to my husband about it, talked to a few of my other colleagues. And they were like, yeah, I think you'd be great for it. You should consider it. And I took on the role. So. Yeah, here I am. So I served in that role for a year, and the president at the time was Sushada Kamath. Oh, I love Sushada. Yes. Yep. So I served under Sushada as the president-elect, and she taught me a lot. And then it was my turn. I was up. I was president. And I had the... Um, how do I say this? At the honor of serving, not once, but twice as president for our association. <laughs> Consecutively. Okay, folks, that happens when you have limited volunteers to fulfill the next role. Oh, so yes, it is an honor to serve twice. But y'all, that's a lot of work for two years. Oh, running. Oh, my Lord, woman. Yup. Okay. Yes, yes. And then who knew that when I took the position of president-elect that I would face some of the most difficult times in my personal life which would also render some difficult times in my professional life outside of the state association, but just with managing how to deal with personal um, issues as they arise, some of the scariest things that I've probably experienced um, and still 
lead this group by the helm. You want to kind of throw your hands up and run away, but you know, any good leader knows that when you're facing adversity, you don't run away. You look it straight in the face and forge straight on, head on. And so that's what I did. Um, as difficult as it was at times, I'm thankful that I had a very supportive board um, that was there to help as I progressed. But yeah, it, and I've heard stories from other presidents of state associations, including my own, that also had some very difficult and trying times when they were serving as president. So I guess that's the way the cookie crumbles. Yes, it's, it's, it is. Y'all wanting to lead and wanting to affect change. It's, um, it's, you're standing on the edge of a knife tip. Absolutely. And, and your decisions have long-term ramifications for where you will lead your state association or say you're the DOR at your job, the director of rehab, your decisions impact your allied health team members, they impact your patients, and you have to constantly think critically. And the emotional, physical fatigue from that for years this is honestly why I have so much gray hair <laughs> and I get the rest of it colored except for my stripe, but <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. And I'm sure you feel the same because when your time is up and you walk away from that volunteer position, you can look back with pride and joy in your heart that you were part of something bigger, right? Yeah. So Okay, so on my side, over here in your sister state, um, I have encountered racism and I have encountered difficulties with cultural competency, both as a professional, as a clinician, and as as a leader. Uh, I was not prepared for that when we moved here, right? I was not prepared for the assumption that because I am a white woman, that I was therefore a racist. And that was hard. I remember a interpreter advocating for me with a family sharing, Michelle's not going to report you to ICE. Michelle's not going to try to get you deported. She's just here to help your baby. And which kid was born? I don't know. One of the boys was little. It blurs together because they don't let you sleep. Um, But one (laughs) of the boys was little. And I remember coming home and nursing them and just crying. And because it was, I was unprepared for that. And I didn't know how to have that conversation, but we did, we powered through. And then I was, it was like, I was, um, it was like I was led into the cool kids club for lack of a better phrase. Like I was accepted. I was, it was understood that I wasn't there for harm, but I was there for help. And, and that started breaking down barriers on both sides. Right. And with respect to our state leadership, we have as a state association evolved so much over the years. And we have, Diversity on our board from um, 
different um, cultural backgrounds, different geographic locations, and different uh, professional settings, which is which is what you want in a board, right? right? Like you want leaders that look like our country, right? right? Okay, so talk to us about the ugly because we 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 need to have this conversation. What what did you encounter on your on your path and how can we all improve? I don't I, I say we all improve. That sounds wrong as I say it. I'm sorry, but you know what I mean. No, I absolutely get what you mean. Um, personally, I really did not experience any of that um, as a student. I always felt supported in my program once I entered into grad school. Um, undergraduate was a little bit different. It was a little bit more unique. Um, I actually felt that I had some type of negative stigma and aura around me as it related to someone of um, the same race that was a professor, not from the others. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was difficult. But when I moved into my graduate training, I felt nothing but support um, from the professors, from my classmates, from the practicum placements that I had. I never had any issues in those respects. Um, moving into being a clinician, a treating clinician, no issues during my CF year. Um, Wait, but- I, ha- I have a question. Mm-hmm. What? How did you feel supported? What can we? What can we do? Because now I'm in a position where I'm a clinic coordinator at a university, and I want to make sure that my students, that when I'm training students from, and they have different cultural backgrounds, that they feel supported. So, what can I say? What can I do to ensure that they continue to have a positive experience? So for me, at the undergraduate level, I did not feel like when I entered into graduate school that I was as prepared as I should have been. But I think because of some of the obstacles of being in a non-traditional program, because that's what the school was at that time, it actually made me take on more of the responsibility of getting the education that I needed. So when I transitioned over to my graduate program, I actually found out through my professors and through the reintroduction of some things that I had already had exposure to as an undergraduate that I was actually more prepared than most of my classmates. Um, I'd had undergraduate placement with a student. It was in our university clinic, but I had an undergraduate student that was very unique to my placement at the time. No other students came in with undergraduate hours. Um, I had had an undergraduate AAC course and my professor who taught it had studied directly under Buchelman. So we um, had a graduate course and the, the course book that we used was Buchelman. So my professor told me that I was well ahead of everyone else because they'd never had any of this exposure. 
and just my interpretation of the information um, was good. But I got a lot of feedback from my professors. I think they could sense my hesitancy or my reluctance to sometimes speak up um, or I would hold back because I didn't feel like I was competent in certain areas, but they were good at reassuring me that I knew what I knew and I knew even what I thought I didn't know. Um, they did a really good job of making me feel comfortable as someone who was coming from the outside, so to speak. So at Valdosta, majority of the students who go from their majority of their students that go into their graduate program came directly from their undergraduate. So if you come from another university, you almost feel as though you're an outsider. That lasted all of maybe a day for me. Um, the professors and the students were really great about taking those of us in that did not come from there and making us feel like a part of the family from day one. So, um, I think there were a total of three of us that came from different universities. I was the only one that came from Armstrong. And then I think two students came from UGA. So it was you, a really good UGA. experience. Wait, is UGA the bulldog thing? Yeah, that's the bulldog. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> I was dogs. like, wait, you added an A to me and I don't understand now. Okay, sorry, just making sure. I was like, oh, crap, there's a whole other university I got to learn. Okay. <laughs> well, there are two other universities, but... <laughs> I won't make you learn them today. <laughs> okay, good. We've reached, reached, reached cognitive fatigue. <laughs> yes. Okay. So they did a really good job from that respect. All right. So my takeaways are creating opportunities for learning, validating verbal validation and reassurance of what you know, and then creating opportunities for you to speak in class or speak in general, um, so there's a, there's a great quote from a recently elected woman on that, um, and and fostering that those yeah. those okay beautiful okay. absolutely okay so what about when you entered your CF in your early career? Um, I personally did not have a good CF. I I can't. I can't pinpoint if the experience with my CF supervisor was the way that it was because of it being a race issue. You know, it always kind of comes into your mind, but not really for me because I had, I was in a unique situation as a CF. There were, I think, 14 of us SLPs in total that worked in our department. Um, but I got assigned a specific CF supervisor with whom I found out later had had not so great CF experiences with other people and that it wasn't the students or the new clinicians who were the problem. It was her that was the problem. She was not a person who could foster relationships um, or give constructive criticism in a manner that was well received. Yes, absolutely. So luckily for me, there were 13 or 12 other people in the department who filled in the gaps and did that for her. Yes. Um, folks, if you're listening and say you're a student getting ready to graduate or you're in your CF year, you have 
options. You can change your CF. It's, I know just hearing that word, I, I know the total and complete fear associated with that, but that happened to one of my dear friends, um, several years ago, her CF, um, and, and she is, she is a white woman and her supervisor was a white woman, but her supervisor, her CF supervisor was not, she did not have the soft skills that are required for, um, supervision of a student and, or of a CF. And it was bullying and it was bullying period. And I strongly encouraged my dear friend to speak up and speak out. And so she talked to her, um, the owner of the company and explained what was going on. And the owner knew that the individual's personality could be a little, um, not so warm and fuzzy. We'll just go with that. And the owner reassigned her a CF mentor, like halfway through her CF and her CF ended with complete and total support and on an incredibly high positive note because she advocated for herself. And, and so y'all, I don't want you to feel like you're, you're stuck, um, because you're not, and it is incredibly scary, but that's where you have you have leadership and guidance from. I mean, there's members on your state association, and there's members with your state licensure board. There's um, support at ASHA for that. That's why you join. That's why you pay money for those things. There's guidance there for you. Okay, sorry. Continue. I just feel really strongly that folks need to know that. No, I think that is important to know. Um, I had such a negative experience. I felt like my career was a very rocky start. Luckily, that has not continued for me. Um, But it definitely had a big um, impact on my initial introduction to the field of speech language pathology and made me question, you know, am I on the right track? Am I in the right setting? Is this really what I want to do? Because of that, I mean, anytime you have difficult situations that you face, you have to assess the situation and determine why, you know, it's like you rendered that treatment to that patient. And so then you go back and you evaluate, was that session successful or was it not successful? Why was it successful? Why was it not successful? What could I have done better? What could I have done differently? How can I move forward with this treatment plan and get the desired outcome? So I kind of took that same um, format and applied it to this situation. And thank God that I did, because if I had I would have walked away. <laughs> yeah, you you used implementation science to reassess your career, and I'm so glad that you stayed. Yay! Yes, yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. So, um, yeah, that I mean that wasn't the best experience, but like I said, you know, it it shapes who you are, and because of it, you know, I I am more in tune with different things that I learned about myself as well as others. Yes. Emotional intelligence, y'all. That's that's where we, we have to grow our emotional intelligence. One thing that I 
see that a lot of our profession struggles with is um, taking care of themselves, caregiver fatigue and caregiver burnout. And we are a profession of caregivers and developing the skills for emotional intelligence. Um, and that ties into therapeutic presence. And in, in my humble opinion, when you're working on personal growth with how you interact with patients, with families, with colleagues, embedded within emotional intelligence is cultural competency. Right. Um, yes. I just, I, I, you can't separate those two. They have to go hand in hand, in my opinion. So... <laughs> that's a tiny soapbox i apologize <laughs> no absolutely yeah okay all right so what have what have you seen as ways to foster and inspire um diversity and cultural competency in your role as a leader within your state association like what how how has that happened and occurred? Encouraging people to identify their strengths and weaknesses, uh -huh. hone in on their strengths, and try to improve upon their weaknesses. I think those are the key pieces to that. Wait, when you say that, my first thought is um, clinical, like therapeutic, or like professional? Can well, from a professional standpoint, you know, if someone wants to volunteer, you know, they'll say, oh, well, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what would be a good position for me. So we always encourage them to review the role and responsibility associated with any of the positions that we have on the board. If one of them fits them, or maybe they like something, we ask them to start there. And then identify, you know, would you want to serve as the leader on this committee or would you like to serve as a member? Because those can be vastly different roles, one assuming more responsibility, obviously, than the other. So we like to get people to start, you know, small and then move up based on where they feel they fit in the most. We want people to be comfortable. We don't want it to feel like it's a burden or taking on some additional work after work, so to speak, but something that they can feel as an extension of their professional selves and be proud of what work they are doing. Because it is work, you know, anytime you join a state association and you get involved, it is work, um, but it's good work. And that's what you want to do. Y'all, this is, we have an obligation to future generations to uh, educate and inspire. It is on us. And here's the thing: I really think that our that I don't want to say our youth because I'm not that old. I'm only 37. But the clinicians that are in their late 20s, early 30s, they see potential, and they're not afraid to to pursue advocacy and change, right? I mean, like the NISHLA members, the national NISHLA, and I think we, we talked a year ago, national NISHLA from like a year ago 
in a couple of emails, were able to get more sponsorship for a cup for a few bills that Asha was advocating for than our own professional association. And they did it in like 24, 48 hours. That's insane. We had what, 4% of our national association membership voted in the most recent ASHA election. That what was it, 4% or 6%? I can't remember now. It was in the ASHA leader. But that's not even 10. I mean, it was less than 10%. Mm-hmm. That's abysmal. You have a voice. You have a vote. We can use it. And, and we can... And we can, if we inspire, if we reach out and encourage, and I, and I do agree, you are right. It is the, it is the personal touch. You do have to almost know somebody in order to get involved. But at the same time, when you're in a position of leadership, when you see that spark in somebody, tell them, acknowledge it. And help it grow. I, I, there's a young lady that um, I am in awe of, and I told her I was like, "You are doing amazing work. You're, you're going to lead us one day." And she came up to me afterwards, and she goes, "I feel seen for the first time. I feel seen. I feel validated." And it, it was just, it was a heartfelt conversation that we had, and then I just proceeded on, right? Like I, I didn't. But taking the moment to acknowledge that, that's what we have the ability to do. Right. So if you're in a position of leadership, acknowledge the spark in someone, foster it, grow it, because your words have weight. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just like Akasha, we say, have a voice, be heard, communication for all, our mission and vision. That's what we stand for. So step up, speak up. Yep. Yep. Yes, this is amazing. Okay, so now I know some state associations are doing like a leadership program within themselves. Is Georgia doing that? Not at this time. We definitely would love to move towards that. Um, We certainly encourage everybody to join ASHA's leadership program that they have. We've had several people who have reached out to the board. We actually have a, a new member fairly new member that came to us right after finishing her program with ASHA because they are encouraging, you know, that they reach out to state associations in addition to the national organization and start doing some of that good work. And so we're thankful that um, she has come along and we hope that we get many others that also want to, and maybe they can develop our leadership program because I think it's certainly needed I definitely think that it's something that will help our members um, and our executive board as we try to continue with this culture of healthy um, leadership and cultivating how we do what we do. Okay. So I, we we have one, um, and it's brand spanking new. Um, Dr. Amber Heap, um, she's with Pruitt Healthcare. She's a past president of um, South Carolina. She's yeah, I know Amber. Amber, yeah. She's, I always love her spectacles, glasses. How old am I spectacles? <laughs> um, but uh, she's always got sassy eyes. And I think I just love that. And she's the reason I got um, my reading glasses have rhinestones <laughs> because- I was inspired, but, um, Amber setting up the, uh, the, the Skisha one. 
and different states have that. So if you if you're interested in in starting out, and say you're a younger, more recent graduate student, or like recent graduate, because you do have to be a, a licensed SLP um, in most state associations in order to be like in a, a board member position. There's opportunities for you to learn. So say you're, you're hesitant to start, but you know that you can, with a little bit of polish and some demonstration and wisdom, you know that you have it in you to rise, then, then rise, then sign up and, and partake in that. Okay. California has a great program. Um, what is it? Deb and Beryl, um, Beryl. Ms. Vogel, I just call mm-hmm. her, I always say it wrong because my little bitty redneck accent, oh, <laughs> but, but they have, they were describing theirs and it, it's divided into regions to support people locally because the state's so big. And I thought that's phenomenal. So if you're, if you're out in California, take a peek at what, what are they? Kasha? Yes. Kasha. And then Texas Tisha. Um, and they have a really big association and I think they also have a leadership program. So yeah, there are some out there and, um, you know, they, they have a lot of members and they have a lot of active members. So that helps a lot. Okay. So this past year we had a lot of, um, hurt and pain and growth and hope as a country, right? Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, that's, that's, we gotta go there. So that, that fell in your time as what president to immediate past president was that there was an overlap there, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and that's a fine line when you go from being the person at the helm to being the, um, the past president, especially the immediate past president. So you're still on the board, but you're, 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 you're doing less. You're taking a backseat, you're advising role, right? Mm -hmm. Um, how, what advice do you have for, um, for leaders, whether they be leaders of their state association or, uh, leaders of their rehab department or leaders and owners in their clinic or, um, clinical faculty like myself, Right. what advice do you have for us to navigate these conversations? Um, they're difficult conversations, but I think they're necessary to have. I think that it's important that you speak candidly with your board about it um, and always keep your membership first and those you serve. So at no point do you want the people you serve or the people you represent to feel underrepresented or misunderstood. You want to make sure that you clearly define those lines and roles as best you can so that they know where you stand and how you can support them. Um, I think that's key is you want inclusion. You never want a a specific group of people to feel like they're being isolated or alienated um, for any reason. Uh, If you do, you may be in the wrong profession and you need to rethink it because we serve any and everyone under the sun in this profession, no matter race, color, creed, sexual origin. If you're a person and you need our services, we are here to serve you. So we need to make sure that everyone feels that they can have that voice and that they can be heard and that we hear them. 
and that we are here to work with them through these different obstacles and make sure that they can effectively and efficiently communicate um, what it is that they're feeling and, and how let us know how we can best serve them as well. Um, I have got an opinion, but you know how people say what opinions are like. Hey, hey, hey. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the first time I heard that, I was like, that's brilliant. <laughs> um, but here it is. A position statement is a, a solid starting point, right? Yes. A position statement is just that a yeah. solid starting point. Yes. It is it is your actions afterwards that people will remember you for. Yes. Words have weight, but when you act, that's what we learn and grow from. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. So um make sure that if you write a position statement that if you um, if you say that you're going to affect change, then you then have to do it. And honestly, next week we have, um, uh, Haley Jones, one of my girlfriends on, uh, and it's all about, um, diversity, inclusiveness, and how to create the programs. Uh, so that when you start with the statement, what do you do next? Right. And, and that I am, um, I'm really excited about, but, we we were there. We saw Ash's first position statement was uh, lackluster for um, just mm -hmm, to put it politely. But it was a start. One well, a great start. And I see them doing better. But that's that's hard to know how to say the right words. And here's my suggestion. If you want to make a statement, please make sure that you have members from the community that you are making the statement about in the shaping and crafting of your mission statement. Correct. That you have to have the stakeholders. Otherwise, we got a problem, Houston. So there's that. Um, yeah, and you you know, one thing that we've really tried to do with Gasha <clears throat> with our board is to try and make our board reflect those that we serve. So we try to be inclusive of all races, all sexes, because we want that representation and we want that voice. And sometimes it's a lot easier to access your board members so you can get that more candid look at things than it is to reach out to members. It's a, a little quicker, you know, to be able to tap this smaller group of people and then expand upon it, you know, at a later time. So, you know, we, we welcome and encourage, you know, our students, our professionals, um, and anyone who wants to become an associate member to be involved actively. Come in, help us, help us shape this, this thing that we're doing. We can't do it alone. And I think that's the biggest thing that people have to understand. You know, the, like you said, the words are only as good as the actions that follow. And sometimes you don't need any words. You just need to get things moving. Set it in motion. Yep. Yep. Hmm.
Yeah, but you and I are a little bit of a fire leadership style. So we like things moving. <laughs> and there ain't nothing wrong with that. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, my. Okay. All right. I do have to save us time at the end for questions. But before we make the switch, I do understand that you have a rather large event coming up here rather shortly. So do you want to talk to us about that? Wait, I jumped the gun. Was there anything else that you wanted to say? Um, no, I think we pretty much summed up everything. Uh, I think that you're going to face obstacles in life, but how those obstacles affect you is up to you. I encourage you to learn from them and try to make the best of any situation, no matter how good or bad. Um, you can always find some light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, you can. This I agree with. Yep. So we do have an upcoming event. We have our um, first ever Georgia Speech Language Hearing Association virtual convention, February 5th through 6th, 2021. Uh, registration is open through the 29th of January. Anyone is welcome to join us for that event. If you are a member of another state association, you do get the member rate. If you are just someone who's not a member but wants to attend, we welcome you to come. We have a great program lined up, and we have tried to keep the format as close to our formatting that we would have if we were in person so that there's some familiarity with the event. I think with so many events moving virtually, so many different things, um, sometimes we kind of lose that structure that we've gotten used to. Um, I know for us, ours is a huge networking event. So we have built in some networking opportunities virtually um, that I think are gonna be really, really neat to see how they play out. And so we just welcome everybody to come and register and join us for this event. I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, I, I will miss y'all have one heck of an after party. Um, uh, just saying, I mean, most conventions <laughs> have a good after party, but y'all Georgia, um, the gentlemen and ladies from Georgia know how to host a, um, a, a gathering, right? That is, um, <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered what it was that I wanted to say earlier. Call for papers. Call for papers is a lie. You think you're given a paper presentation, but it's actually the technical <laughs> term for like the like the hour or 90 minute functional presentation. So when you said volunteering on the call for papers, I remember the first time when I that when I got the emails from Skisha and they were like, please submit your call for papers. And I was like, well, why would I go to a convention to read journal articles? That's foolhardy. <laughs> somebody, <laughs> luckily, somebody was like, Michelle, come on, woman. <laughs> so, yep, that's a uh, humble pie. Um, <laughs> also, y'all have um, your poster presentations. And I know poster presentations are probably going to be difficult to do virtually this year. But that's an opportunity for our students to have... Um, to brag about what they've worked on their research for so long for and our colleagues, because that's, that's an endeavor of the heart. And y'all, 
a lot of state associations I know are moving to like a money prize for like, you know, people will vote on like the best poster presentation. So if you have a poster and it's good quality evidence and hanging in your closet somewhere, because most colleagues do like rolled up in those big travel tubes. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember when the call for posters comes out, because it at least makes sense. It's not like this misnomer call for papers. Uh, submit, because sometimes they have like a cash prize and that's fantastic. And and it's awesome to be able to share in your research. So. Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, Miss Sonia, I appreciate you greatly. And um, thank you for, for joining us and thank you for leading and thank you for um, bio oil because that's just <laughs> amazing. And um, hold tight and let me switch this over to questions really quick. Okay. Okay. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, 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 hey.